This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, it's really great to have you with us, particularly welcome if you're visitors, really good to see you. We're doing a series called Missionary Jesus, and two weeks ago I looked at John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, and then last week my friend Dan from the States, he looked at Nathaniel, the skeptic. So today we're going to look at the religious insider, we're going to look at a guy called Nicodemus, who's a religious insider, religious part of the ruling elite. And then next week, we're going to look at the total opposite. We're going to look at a Samaritan woman who's a total outsider. So that's where, where we're going. Okay, right. <clears throat> Back in 2003, uh, there was a song called uh, Where is the Love by the Black Eyed Peas. Does anyone remember that song? Yeah. It, what a great song. And uh, one of the uh, infamous moments in my uh, ministry was that we did a wedding in the church that I led in Manchester at the time. And um, the, the guy who was getting married was a bit into his rapping music and stuff like that. So what happened is that, that we'd got the video of the song wrapped up, you know, where is the love, father, father. And uh, what happened, it didn't work. So here we are at this person's wedding. The whole t- wedding talk's based on uh, the song, where is the love, and it didn't work. So what they did is the whole, basically there was a general furore in the uh, congregation, and I rapped the whole song. But not today. (laughs) Never again. But it's interesting, the song starts with, what's wrong with the world mama? Do that, mama. Mama. What's wrong with the world mama? And it ends with, father, father, help us send some guidance from above, because people got me questioning, where is the love? And then it finishes, something's wrong with the world, yeah. Something's wrong with it, yeah. Something's wrong with the world, world, world. I've really lost it, haven't I, over the years. I, I mean, I was, I was Will I Am then, and now I'm Will Nobody Do It Better. The question, what's wrong with the world, is, is, is everywhere, but you probably never headline it, what's wrong with the world. You talk about it in Parliament, refugee crisis, you talk about it around pubs, you talk about it around your dinner table, you talk about it all those places, but actually you never really headline it, what's wrong with the world, but all the time you're questioning, something's out of kilt, what's wrong with my family, what's wrong with my relationships, what's wrong with these things, you're asking what's wrong with the world, and, and often we can't even agree on, on the diagnosis, very rarely, if, you, if we went round here, or you went round in the streets and said, what's wrong with the world, uh, most people wouldn't give you the same diagnosis. You know, different political parties might give you different things. They might say it's laziness or greed or whatever political spectrum you are. And, and much less do people uh, agree on what's the cure. But that question, what's wrong with the world, is kind of resonates around. And it's not a, it's not a question that's new. Uh, in 1908, the Times newspaper allegedly, we're not quite sure if this is true, the Times newspaper asked uh, people to write to their letters page, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, who was a Catholic philosopher, uh, wrote a brief response. Dear sirs, 
I am your sincerely GK Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. And it's really interesting that actually G.K. Chesterton's diagnosis applies to elites and outcasts, but actually it applies to all of us. And one of the things we'll find as Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he seems an unlikely person to be the problem. He probably thinks he's the solution. But actually we find as Jesus encounters Nicodemus that he helps to answer that question, both diagnosis and cure. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to read uh, John 2. And 23, that's the last two, three verses of verse 23. Because amazingly, the Bible doesn't, didn't divide into chapters. It's actually a nice story that runs together. And sometimes you miss something when you don't get the um, full chapters. So, verse 23. And while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in him. And it says he did not need the testimony of any man. No celebrity endorsements. For he knew what was in each person. So this is following, obviously, all the miracles and the stuff he's doing at Passover. And it says, and there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the signs you were doing if God knows was not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old Nicodemus? Now, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, very truly. When Jesus says that, he really is emphasizing, underlined three times. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have life. And then we get the famous, famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Father, we pray as we look at these iconic verses from this encounter with an elite religious professional. Lord, we pray that those words wouldn't be just words spoken to him, but there would be words spoken to us. That we'd understand afresh that life is in you. Lord, I pray now, pour your life into us as we hear. Whether we've heard this message a hundred times or whether we're hearing it fresh today, I pray, let it speak life into us. Amen. Okay, so Nicodemus is about as up uh, in society as you can possibly get. He's a member of what's called the Sanhedrin. It's a bit like combination. Obviously, Israel's a theocracy which means it's kind of like the political and religious life is joined together. And so this is about a combination of the Supreme Court, uh, the political cabinet, 
and the Council of Bishops. What's the Church of England Council of Bishops? I forget. Synod, thank you. I was trying to think of it this morning. I couldn't worry. Okay, so basically, this guy is, um, you know, he's, he's a Supreme Court judge. He's Lord Justice, whatever. He's, you know, George Osborne, and he's the Bishop of Gloucester, who's now a lady, but hey. But he's, you know, he's all those things rolled in together. And the Sanhedrin composed of about 70 men, and it was the kind of religious and political body of, of, of Israel. So this guy's... Um, a big deal. The high priest served as the president of this uh, council, the Sanhedrin, and uh, people who were on the San- Sanhedrin were expected to be both influential and wealthy, but also to know the Old Testament. They were uh, often scribes or Pharisees who knew the Bible really well. Now, it's interesting that John records that Nicodemus uh, came to Jesus at night. Even at this early stage, Jesus is incredibly controversial. Uh, he's not been, uh, his ministry hasn't been going very long. He's been baptized. He's been tempted in the desert. Uh, he's turned water into wine in John's narrative. And, but then, actually, really early on in John's narrative, Jesus has literally turned over the tables. He's gone into the temple and he's said, This is not right. He turns over the tables and said, This is a, should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. This is going to hit the papers. If Jesus wasn't famous when John the Baptist baptized him, he's certainly getting a reputation now. And then to add to that, he starts to do miracles around the Passover. Suddenly Jesus is in everybody's attention, and I suspect that the Sanhedrin uh, have said to somebody, who's going to find out who this guy is? And Nicodemus, uh, whether he was interested, said, oh, I'm quite interested, I'll go. Or whether the Sanhedrin said, just go, and would you find out about him? He he goes. Now, obviously, he's a savvy politician. He doesn't want to be snapped by the Daily Mail meeting this controversial figure. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn does that kind of thing. He doesn't care. He'll be on the marches. He doesn't really mind. But most politicians are careful what they say. And and so, therefore, he kind of goes at night uh, and meets Jesus under cover of darkness. And he asks him the question. He's very courteous, respectful. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from, come from God. He's not suggesting that he's, he's actually God himself come to earth, although Jesus underlines that later in the passage. He's just saying, you're a prophet. You're, you're, you're kind of like John the Baptist, but we, we, we don't know who you are. He says, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God was not with him. Uh, and it's interesting, he calls him rabbi. Nicodemus would have been a rabbi. He's probably been to theological college. He's well-trained theologically. He knows what's going on. And he would have, uh, to call Jesus a carpenter who never had theological training, well, Nicodemus is scoring some points here. He's actually showing understanding that Jesus has got some truth to tell. And actually he's saying you, you, you do the miracles from God, which is a lot better than some of the people in Sanhedrin because they said that Jesus is doing the miracles by Satan. So actually Nicodemus is actually a pretty good guy. He's courteous, he's respectful, he's inquiring, he's asking questions. But basically he is really asking Jesus to prove himself to the establishment, to lay out his credentials. He's kind of asking, who are you then? That's really interesting. In our society today, people are no different. What they, if they want to inquire about Jesus, basically they want Jesus to prove themselves to us. They want Jesus to... So, you know, I've often said, well, if you pray, God will reveal yourself to me, that Jesus will do that. And, that. and sometimes he does that. But really what we do is we often sign up for Alpha courses or we'll sign up to find out about Jesus. But really what we're going there is we're going to say, come on, Jesus, you, 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 you prove yourself to me. But Jesus is saying, well, I, I don't need any celebrity endorsements. I'm not looking for, you know, I know what's inside a person. And it's interesting, when you, when you ask that kind of question, people don't even know who Jesus is. Because Nicodemus has come, he's got some idea, and he's saying, come on, tell me who we are. And, Nicod- and Jesus is saying, well, I've done, so, I've done some things on earth, and I've talked about earthly things, I've done some things, and you haven't really listened. And I think our society is like that. It's saying, come on, Jesus, tell me who you are. 
but never really finds out. He never really investigates. I, I, I found this shocking the other day. The, the, I don't know if you know the, the old brownie promise. Has anyone ever... Not gentlemen, I hope you don't put your hands up. Anyone in the brownies? Okay, about three, four, oh, four. Wow, that's very good. Okay, and this is what the brownie promise used to be. It says, I promise that I'll do my best. It used to be this. To love God, to serve my queen and country, to help other people and keep the brownie guide law. And actually, people think that, that, well, that must be the gospel, isn't it? Well, basically, what it is, to be a good Christian is, well, you, you, you do your best. You know, you serve the queen and country, you help other people, you do a good turn every day, keep the brownie guide law, and, and, and yeah, loving God, I, that must be part of it somewhere. Yeah, and we get this kind of wishy-washy, brownie guide kind of Christianity, and nobody really knows what it's about. In fact, the brownies have made it even more wishy-washy. Do you know what they've taken out and added? Just for political sake. They've taken out love God and they've said, be true to myself and develop my beliefs. And I think that is the kind of what people think Christianity is about. Yeah, just love God. Just be true to yourself. Do your best. Do a good deed every day. And we're saying, we, we want to investigate about Jesus, but we never really find out what does he say. So you get the, the, the media saying, oh, a Christian wouldn't do that, or a Christian wouldn't do that, or a Christian wouldn't do that. Because they've got this idea, it's just like the brownie guide, we'll just be nice to everybody. But actually, when you, when you decide to investigate Jesus, what happens, shockingly, frighteningly, is that he starts to investigate you. You think, I'm going to find out about you, Jesus. But actually what happens is very, very quickly the question's turned on you. You say, who are you, Jesus? And he turns it and says, no, who are you? What are you like? What's in your heart? Not who I am. Not who I am. Who are you? And that's what happens to Nicodemus. The question spun around in him very, very quickly. The question bounces back on him. So Jesus is facing this guy from the religious establishment, this guy who, who basically should say, look, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm high enough up in this, in this society for you to tell me who you are. Don't you understand my position? I've been very courteous and nice, but now tell me who you are. Jesus flips it over and says, let me tell you about you. And he says this very, very forcefully. I tell you very truly, underlined three times, you know, highlighted, I tell you truly, I'm not lying. It's funny, I've got a friend who said, to be honest. And I think, you know, what does that mean? Do you lie normally? <laughs> Jesus isn't saying no, to be honest, because he lies normally. He's saying, look, listen up. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see or experience the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one can see it. You can't perceive it. You don't know what's going on. You certainly can't enter it. You can't be in the presence of God. You can't, you can't experience life full and rich unless you're born again. So it's interesting. That's where that phrase, born again, comes from. I don't know if people ever ask you, are you a born again Christian? You know, I've had people ask me, I'm a born again Christian. Or, are you a born-again Christian? And, and I think it's really interesting that actually he said, what? what? And that's what born-again means. And, and actually, but if you think, just before we talk about that born-again, what Nicodemus is going to think? Now, obviously, he's born into a wealthy family. He, he, you know, he, he, he probably had all the right opportunities in life. And he's, and he's spent his whole life being religious. And Jesus is saying, well, that doesn't count for anything. You've got to start again. You've got to be born again. All that stuff that was to your credit, everything that was to your advantage, well, that doesn't count for anything now that's got to be born again. In fact, you could hear the Jew, you, you probably his Jewish kind of alarm bells are ringing because to be a Jew is all about when you're born. It's all about being born a Jew. It's all about being born into this place and this people or whatever. And, and actually, uh, John the Baptist kind of calls the Jews out on that one. 
They come to him saying, what? he says, why do you come to me to be baptized? I mean, it's not necessarily the approach you would take. He says, you brood of vipers, why are you coming to me to be baptized? And don't say to me that you're children of Abraham. You're Jews, you're children of Abraham, God's chosen people. He says, John the Baptist says, from the stones in the ground, God can make children of Abraham. But Jesus is saying, that's all great, isn't it? That's really good. All the years you've spent keeping the religious rules, every, all the years you've gone to church meetings, and all the years you've done all the right religious things, I'm sorry, they count for nothing. Your, your Jewish roots as God's chosen people, born in a Christian country, in converted commas, you know, all those things, they count for nothing. It's interesting, this idea about born again. Tim Keller, who's a preacher from New York and also writes brilliant books. Uh, if you can pick up any of his books, really like it. He leads a church called Redeemer, engaging with very, very secular New York culture. This is what he writes. He kind of gets what people think uh, about what we say. And so this is what he says. It's common today to believe that born again people are different from most of us more emotional or more broken, that they need a dramatic turnaround to get them on the right path. We can imagine that they've done something bad or are so weak that only a seismic change in their life will help them. As if a reborn experience is okay for a certain type of person, but far too extreme for the sorted and balanced and nicely normal people like me. I mean, so good, Keller, isn't he? Because we think, yeah, a born-again experience, well, surely the drug addict... He needs, or she needs a born-again experience. The prostitute, she needs a born-again experience. The woman, as we'll find out next week, who's had five husbands, she needs a born-again experience. But us religious people, we're just doing fine, aren't we? We don't need a a born-again experience. We don't need to start from scratch. But he's saying, you might be the religious leader. You might be David Cameron, but you need to be born again. You might be the Archbishop of Canterbury, but you need to be born again. You might be Donald Trump. And you might pretend to be born again because it's helpful for the American cabinet, sorry to be political, but you need to be born again. I don't know if he is or not. But what I'm saying is, it doesn't matter your status. Rich man in Trump Tower, beggar at the door, you need to be born again. Doesn't count for anything. The thing about being born is that you contribute nothing to the process. Husbands contribute a very small amount to the process, for which I am grateful. But don't go there. <laughs> But babies contribute nothing to the process. You contribute nothing. You don't ask to be born. It's not due to hard work or privilege that you're being born. It's not the result of skillful planning that you decide to be born. It's not part of you're a good little cell. Uh, Well, you can be born. You're a very, very good sperm. Yes, you can be born. No, there's none of that. Sorry to get into biology, but it is life. It says that what happens is life is just a gift for you. I mean, literally, you receive it gasping and crying. They smack your bum, and it's like, hello. You know, you didn't didn't say, whoa, what's this? You didn't ask to be born. No, they don't come out of the womb and say, well, you're obviously a really, really noble little baby. That's why you've been born. They come out kicking and screaming and selfish and horrible, like all the rest of us. And that's, Jesus is saying, that's how you receive the life of God. You don't earn it. It's not due to careful planning or moral behavior. Nicodemus, it's nothing to do with your good birth or whatever. Actually, this is, comes for free. And that's incredibly humbling for somebody who's at the top of the tree and incredibly empowering for somebody who's got nothing. But he's saying you've got nothing. What You're going to get nothing. Or the life-transforming, world-renewing love of God is an unmerited gift of God. The Bible calls that grace. 
free gift, unmerited favour. You get it, it's just like being born. You contribute nothing to the process. Not even your faith, because that comes to you from God anyway. Now it's interesting, Nicodemus is therefore very sarcastic at this point. He's basically said, Nicodemus, you don't count for nothing. Nicodemus is a good politician, not want to be rude, he's a little sarcastic. He says, uh, okay, come on Jesus, how can somebody be born again when you're old? Surely you cannot enter a second time into your mother's womb. Don't be stupid, Jesus. Uh, can you not hear that? Uh, yeah, how can I get in my mother's womb when I'm old? Don't be stupid. Can I be born again? But actually, it's interesting, he, his focus is he wants his body to be made new. That's what he's thinking about. He's thinking, I want my flesh to be made new. And I'm getting older. I didn't sleep last night. I'm on double, uh, Sue understands this one. I'm on double paracetamols now for my, uh, and ibuprofen for my hip. Uh, my name is saying, come and get to the doctors. NHS, you know, won't do it. I need to be crawling on, on all fours before they do it. You know, I'd like my body to be made new. Uh, you know, if I could, you know, let's not go there. But if I could be reborn, if I could get back in my mother's womb and come out new... I think that would be nice. I'd love to start again. I'd love to think, man, a lot of the stupid mistakes I've done and the things I've done, I'd love to start again. I'd love my body to be new, not wearing out. And Nicodemus is like that, and our society is obsessed with that. We don't go back into our mother's womb, but what do we do? We take cells from the mother's womb and inject them into ourselves, stem cells, because we're desperate to be made new. Because there's a, there's a dark secret that's wrong with the world. And that's that we're all slowly perishing. We're all slowly dying. Jesus says that it's coming to the world that people should not perish. The problem with the world in Nicodemus' eyes is that we're all slowly dying. We're perishing. I'd like to be made new again. I'd like to keep all my status and my money, but I'd like my body to be made new. And, 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 but the thing is, there's this thing called death. We don't even like to speak about it, do we? So we had some friends, and Naomi and I were writing a card and thinking, I don't know what to put on the card. You don't put... Uh, much sympathy at the recent death of your, do you? Because it's death. It's like a, a word you don't spoke. So we say, you know, there's, there's 110 euphemisms in the English language for death. Because there's something about death that feels like shouldn't be spoken as, 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 if it's, as if it's an intruder into the world and we don't like to mention it's here. Because the truth is, from the very first moment of the Bible, when people decided, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, chose to look for life in something other than God, we slowly started to die. And the Bible calls that what? It's a little word, three letters, we don't speak about it much. Sin. Now, it's funny, if you mention, Tim Keller helped me here, I'm not quoting him, but I'm using his ideas, he says, when you mention the word sinner, sin or sinner, it's loaded with cultural baggage. If you're a visitor here, you think, oh no, it's one of those churches. They, 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 they love it. They love it. They love to get up on their high horse, climb on their moral ladder. There he is. He'll stand up on the stage and he loves to point the finger at you lot and say, you know what? The trouble with you is you're all sinners. Full of sin. And what's happened with sin is it's been used to climb to the moral high ground and cast judgment on other people. We love to climb up high into the moral high ground and point the finger down and say, you are a sinner. Not me. I'm Nicodemus. I'm a Pharisee. I've kept the rules. I'm part of the league. But you, 
prostitute, you addict, you robber, you, you, you. You're all sinners, aren't you? And it's interesting that that that's why sin has got this smelly reputation. Yes, it's got this smelly reputation because it's working in all of us to make us perish and die. But it's working, it's got a really bad reputation because we've used it to say, you are wrong. Jesus says, I didn't come to do that. I love this verse. It says, God did not send his son into the world. Jesus doesn't come just to say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. I hope you feel bad. He's come to say, he's not pointing the finger. I thought about it as I, I did it. He's doing what? He's reaching a hand down. I'm coming to save you. I'm not saying you've sinned. Now sort it. He's saying, I am come to condemn you. I'm come to reach my hand down and pull you up. For God so love this verse. Best verse in the Bible, arguably. Debates. Answers on a postcard. For God so loved the world. That's the motivation. That's the wellspring. It's not finger pointing. I need to look good because I'm insecure as God and I need to get myself high up there so you feel rubbish. I so love the God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who believes him should not, say the word, perish, wither away, but have life eternal. Now it's interesting, the challenge for the morally righteous like Nicodemus is that we tend not to look for our life in Jesus. Like Adam and Eve didn't look for their life in Jesus, they, they didn't look, they look for their life in God. We tend not to look for our life in God. We tend to, the morally righteous ones, uh, uh, if you're morally righteous and you've never done anything wrong, you know, this is probably you. If you think, no, I've done loads of stupid things wrong, the one next week's for you. But if you all think I'm morally righteous, I live in a nice Regency villa, I've got a nice job, my kids go to the right school, we, we've never done anything untoward, we're upstanding and moral and good, then, then actually what you're doing is you're saying, actually, I'm going to save myself. My own good works, my own, uh, my own nice middle-class living is going to contribute. It's going to impact the decaying impacts of sin. As if just going to church or being a nice person or, or help doing a good deed or promising to love God and the Queen or keeping the brownie laws, if that's going to get sin out of your body, as if that's going to take the infecting power of sin out of your body. But that's what, the, that's what we think. But the trouble with that is you're trying to be your own saviour. And what you start to do is what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. They start to think, well, I'm really great, aren't I? I'm doing really well. Look at these. Woman's putting money in to an offering pot. Pharisee, not Nicodemus, but a Pharisee's prayed. Thank you, I'm not like that woman. Oh no, it's a, not a woman putting the money in the pot. It's a, a, a woman who's been a sinner. And he's in, saying his prayers in church and he's saying, thank you, I'm not like him. Look like her. And what's filling his heart, he's thinking, I've got no sin, but actually the very root of sin, pride and self-sufficiency, is filling his heart. We think that nice, good, clean living is really, really what it's all about. But actually, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. I wrote in my notes, flesh infected with sin, in spite of its best efforts, give birth to flesh infected with sin. That's why my kids have got sin. Because mine are infected with sin. And I've had it from those beyond me. And we've had it all from Adam and Eve. We can't do anything about it. Jesus implores us we must be born again. 
The old must go and the new must come, says Paul. So how can this happen as I get to finish? How does it happen? How can you be born again? You need a new start to start from scratch, not trusting your own good will and works. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. When a person's born of God, the very life and love of God flows into them by God's spirit. That's what we saw at Jesus' baptism. We saw Jesus was plunged under the water. And as he comes up out of the water, heaven is opened. A voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. And the spirit of God descends on Jesus. Now that's a picture of what's been happening for all eternity. But actually when you become a Christian, you get to, as it were, stand there. Jesus invites you to be where he is, to be in him, the Bible says. You get to stand there and you get the Father speaks over you, this is my beloved Son. I'm pleased with you. You think, well, I've messed up, I'm terrible, I'm proud. No, this is my beloved Son, I'm pleased with you. And the Spirit of God, the life and love of God personified, comes and fills you. That's what's happening when you become a Christian. But there's an interesting little phrase that I'm just going to end with that, that, that Jesus puts in that gives us another picture of, of how this happens. And if you've been here to God first, we always go here every week. So what he gives us a little picture of what has happened. Now, baptism's a picture. Baptism is a picture of, as you go underwater, it's a picture of what? Death. And as you come out of the water, it's a picture of resurrection. Jesus gives a, a similar picture. He says this. He says you've got to die to your old life and you've got to rise anew. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the... We think, what's this? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes him may have eternal life. Now, it's interesting. Actually, Nicodemus, you probably haven't got a clue about this story. Some of you clever people have, but don't get proudful. But some of you clever people might think, oh, I know this story. I've read it somewhere in my Bible in the year. It was, you know, somewhere in Numbers. It just passed me by. But, yeah, I know the story. What's happened is, it's it's another of those nation-forming moment stories that if you said it to a Jew, to Nicodemus, he knows immediately what we're talking about. You know, this is... This is 1066, 1966 sort of story. There's only two nation-forming moments, aren't there? <laughs> Does anything good happen between those? No. Okay. So, so this is like a nation-forming story. And Jesus says, now remember that story when the, the Jews were in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, wandering around. They'd come out of slavery and they're going into the promised land. It takes them 40 years to get their heads together, sort out, believe Jesus, that they can go in. But in that time, they're mumbling and grumbling and moaning and groaning and they're doing all that stuff. And actually, as a result of one of those incidents, a, a, a plague of snakes. Snakes are a helpful picture for sin and you know, Satan, right at the beginning of the story. A plague of snakes comes in, starts to bite all the people. People are all being bitten on by these poisonous snakes, and they're dying. And finally, what they do is, in their, in their desperation, here with this, what's happening, they realize they're dying. In their desperation, they say to God, help us, save us. And, and, and God says to Moses to do something really quite strange. 
It says, now make a bronze serpent. I think, how long did it make him? People are dying. You know, Moses is trying to make this bronze serpent. Come on, help me. How do you make a bronze serpent? I don't know. Gets a bit of whatever and paints it like a bronze. He gets a bronze serpent. He said, now stick it up on a pole. They stick it up on the pole. And then, and then they said, tell everybody, if you look at the serpent, you'll be healed. The poison will go and you'll have life. Why did God tell him to do that? He told him like that because actually he was looking at something different. He's, he's pointing to a story going forward. He's pointing to the big story of humanity that we're all dying slowly. Bitten by a serpent if you want. All infected by a sin that makes us perish. All of us don't need to be made new again. And Jesus and, and, and God say, you need to look to the serpent. It says, as, the son, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. When you read that in the Bible, lifted up, it doesn't talk about him going to the throne in heaven. It talks about him being lifted up on the cross. Lifted up on the cross. What's happening is, Jesus is lifted up on the cross so that anybody who's suffering from the poison infection of sin can look at him and life will come. In fact, he becomes sin, Paul says. He becomes the the bearer of perishing. He literally dies slowly on the cross, perishing in front of the eyes of the people that watched. I think Nicodemus was there. We have time to develop that, but Nicodemus was there. Something lodged in Nicodemus' eyes, in his brain, that he followed Jesus around, and he's there. And I think maybe when he watched him perish, he realized, I have to look to him and live. Because actually Nicodemus and his mates from the Sanhedrin, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, asked for Jesus' body and bury it. Jesus slowly dies the death. The perishing that we're all due. But Jesus, that's, that's not the end of the story because Jesus has said, you can all be made new. You can all be born again. Sin and death do not have the final finger pointing an accusing word over you. Jesus burst out of the grave three days later to offer what Paul calls in Romans an indestructible life. Now you might think, yeah, but we're all going to die, aren't we? This is all mumbo-jumbo. What are you talking about? We're all going to die. But actually, Jesus died and rose again. And it said he became the Son of God by the power of an indestructible life. So that we don't fear death. We don't fear the perishing of the flesh because something's been done in our spirit. God has made us alive together with Christ. A new life, reborn, that survives death itself. And Jesus' overflowing love comes to Nicodemus. He comes to all of us and says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever looks, lifts up at the one lifted high and believes in him, it's not going to wither away in sin, but going to have life from above. Everyone who believes, Jesus says, may have eternal life in him. I haven't put a slide here, but perhaps I could, you could go on and read Paul's letters. But Paul says, we're born again. The Spirit gives us a life. And now that Spirit, we know that we're children of God and we cry, Abba, Father. There's something when you're a Christian, and this is how you know. 
But this is how you know you're a Christian because inside you, that same spirit that fall, fell upon Jesus at his baptism, that same spirit that burst him out of the grave is alive in you and you know God is your Father. That in Jesus you receive the same beautiful words from God in heaven. Not finger pointing, not condemnation. But taking away everything that you've ever done, good or bad, and starting you afresh as one of his children. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And Nicodemus was challenged by him. He put aside all his nice living and pursued Jesus. So what we're going to do is now, we're going to break bread. There's not space to come to the front like we normally do. But why don't you stand with me? I'm going to ask you a question. It's an obvious question. But sometimes we just forget the answer. Sometimes we've never given an answer. The question is, have you been born again? Out of your nice, tidy life, everything nicely lined up, Have you said, I count it all nothing? I count it all as rubbish, as refuse, as Paul says, compared to the surpassing greatness of having Jesus. We all need to do that. Insider or outcast. Messed up or nicely polished. Have you been born again? said, but I've been going to church and I've been going this and that and my family have sorted that, but there was never a moment where you heard Jesus speaking to you. Believe in me and you'll have life. And maybe you have, but maybe you're looking life elsewhere now. You've ticked that box and you're moving on. You met with Jesus in secret and gone back to your life. Jesus wants to call the sleeping seeds to bloom again. He wants the life that he's put in you as his, by his spirit. He wants them to bloom again. And if you're walking with Jesus and you know each day, you need to know you walk by his grace. You've not built up a good record now or built up a slow, an account with God that he's now well chuffed with you. You come on the first basis that you always come and you come as you take bread and wine and you say, Jesus, it's your life and your life only. It's your broken body on the tree. It's your blood poured out that we might have life. And so as we come, let's, let's drink afresh. Let's eat afresh and say, thank you, for your life, O oh God. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.